You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. In the late 1950s, the Soviets were trying to show the superiority of their economic system by beating us into space, and they did. They launched Sputnik, but by 1969, well, we'd gotten to the moon first and that was the end of that, but the Soviets were still ahead when it came to nuclear power. And then in 1986, the Chernobyl nuclear plant blew up, and that threw a real shadow, not only over the Soviet nuclear effort, but also what the world was going to do with regard to that technology thereafter. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. More than 30 years after a catastrophic explosion at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, researchers with access to declassified Soviet documents are challenging the official version of events surrounding it. The new assessments include the idea that known risks and failures in Soviet communication made the explosion inevitable, and a controversial claim that the number of deaths due to low level of radiation was higher than reported. The reassessment of the costs of Chernobyl come when nuclear energy is a possible solution to rising carbon emissions due to climate change. In this episode, the legacy of the world's worst civil nuclear disaster and how we can evaluate risk in its shadow. It's Rethinking Chernobyl. For the first time ever, the Soviet Union admits it has had a nuclear accident, and it's clearly a major one. But as usual when disasters occur, the Soviet authorities have released very little information. The news agency TASS issued a report in which it spoke of casualties, but without saying how many there were or how great was the destruction caused. The first word that something was seriously wrong came from this power plant in eastern Sweden, where workers coming on the job registered abnormally high levels of radiation on their bodies. It seems virtually certain that what the Soviets have experienced is a nuclear meltdown. How serious and far-reaching would the effects be? Today, believe it or not, Chernobyl is a tourist attraction. Visitors can travel deep into the Chernobyl exclusion zone, a circular patch of contaminated land around the power plant with a 30-kilometer radius. Signs in this post-apocalyptic landscape do warn against touching objects or sitting on the ground. And this reflects the twofold legacy of the world's worst civil nuclear disaster. It is both an event long past and a catastrophe that we're still grappling with today. For some, the name Chernobyl still inspires dread. 
and casts a long shadow over nuclear energy and the claims of fail-safe technologies. Historians and journalists drawing upon declassified Soviet documents hope to give us a clearer idea of exactly what happened. Author Adam Higginbotham's investigation into Chernobyl began in 2006 on the 20th anniversary of the disaster when he spoke with people who lived near to and worked at the nuclear power station. He realized that the full story of the events leading to the explosion had not been told. Mr. Higginbotham conducted first-person interviews with around 80 people, drew on declassified documents in archives in Moscow, Kiev, including its Chernobyl Museum, London, and Harvard, as well as the multitude of scientific reports produced following the accident. The result is his book, Midnight in Chernobyl. It's a cautionary tale about technological hubris. I think in in just the same way as the proprietors of the White Star Line and the architects of the Titanic told the public that the ship was unsinkable, the heads of the Soviet nuclear industrial complex had assured people that the RBMK reactors at Chernobyl were among the safest in the world. And it's that hubris and that complacency that ultimately resulted in the accident. The Soviet-designed RBMK reactors, RBMK is a Russian acronym for a particular kind of graphite-moderated fission reactor, are still used today in Russia, but have since been refitted with additional safety measures. While the explosion at Chernobyl on April 26, 1986 was massive, blowing the concrete lid off the number 4 reactor and releasing a plume of radiation into the atmosphere, The world did not hear about it until a couple of days later, when a radioactive cloud set off detectors in Sweden. That forced the Soviet Union to admit that, while conducting a test of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, there'd been an accident. The proximate cause of the explosion, says Mr. Higginbotham, was a routine safety test that went wrong, a series of design faults and miscalculations that led to a power surge. But the real cause of the disaster, he says, was the secretive culture and political climate of the USSR. Adam, do we know how many died in and around Chernobyl due to the explosion? Well, I mean, as I'm sure you're aware, this is a pretty fraught question. Uh, The simple answer is that the explosion itself caused one death instantly. A second man died around dawn the same day as a result of the injuries sustained in the explosion. And another 29 people died within five months of acute radiation syndrome in hospitals in Moscow and Kiev. Beyond that, it's very hard to say how many people have actually died as a result of the radiation released by the accident. A 2008 UN report estimated that 5,000 people in a population of around 5 million in the worst affected areas would die of cancer that could be attributed to radiation released by the accident. But beyond that, because partly of the attempts to cover up information about the health effects of the accident by the Soviet government and because of the disintegration of the Soviet Union, it's hard to tell how many people are directly affected by the radiation. Let's go back to uh, the spring of 1986. Now, this plant, which had, I think, uh, four reactors at Chernobyl, it was working in the spring of 1986. It was it was feeding the electrical grid, right, uh, with, with amperage. What were the first signs that something had gone wrong on that uh, day in April? I mean, the causes of the accident go back more than 10 years to the initial design of the reactor, which was filled with faults. And one of the 
most significant problems with the design of the reactor was that it was unstable to operate at low power. And when they began doing this test, which was supposed to be very brief and to take place just before the reactor was being shut down for routine maintenance, the operator of the reactor inadvertently put the reactor into an extremely unstable state. And this made it prone to problems that could be created by the worst of the design faults in the reactor, which was the control rods that were intended to reduce power when inserted into the reactor core could, under certain circumstances, and for only a fraction of a second, when they were introduced, could actually increase reactor power instead of decreasing reactor power. And what happened on the night of the accident is that they began the test. The test lasted just 36 seconds. But during those 36 seconds, the reactor became extremely unstable and susceptible to a runaway chain reaction. And at the end of the test, as everything was calming down and they were expecting to essentially, you know, clock off for the evening, they then pressed the emergency shutdown button, as in the normal course of events they would do to shut the reactor down, and the control rods began descending into the reactor. But then the descending control rods did this thing where they briefly increased the amount of reactivity inside the reactor core instead of decreasing them. And that was enough to precipitate a sudden reactor runaway. And that caused an explosion that destroyed not only the reactor, but the roof of the reactor building and two of its walls, started a fire and launched a column of radionuclides into the atmosphere that three days later arrived in Sweden. Okay, so this wasn't simply a case of an operator at the station here simply pushing the wrong button. This was something that, you know, he pushed the right button but got the wrong result. No, the operators of the reactor certainly did make mistakes in the conduct of the test and the way that the test was set up. But once the test began, they did everything according to the book. They did as they were instructed to do and pressed the emergency shutdown button to turn the reactor off. They pressed the button, the control rods began descending into the reactor core, and only at that point, after they'd done everything right, everything they should have done, did they see these readings come back from inside the reactor telling them that something had gone terribly wrong. And at that point, there was nothing they could do about it. Okay, so there was an explosion, one strong enough to blow off the roof, or at least part of it, and uh, that was an incredibly substantial roof, I understand, but the real danger wasn't so much the explosion, that was a danger to maybe people in the building, but it was the destruction of the fission core and the resultant spread of radiation. Maybe you could explain the scenario there. Well, the reactor core was destroyed by an explosion, but then the graphite stacks within the reactor core that were used to moderate fission while the reactor was operating caught fire. And it was this nuclear blaze, which was fueled by this graphite that had been inside the reactor core for the entire duration of one cycle of its operation, and during that time had become amazingly radioactive. It was this stuff burning and releasing radionuclides into the atmosphere that posed such a terrible danger to everybody in Ukraine, Belarus, and the surrounding area. And ultimately, people further afield, because this pillar of radionuclides that was released in the burning material was snatched away by you know, high altitude winds in the upper atmosphere and then began to travel all the way around the northern hemisphere, depositing pieces of fallout where it went. When it was realized what had happened, men were sent in to contain the damage, including firefighters, 
and technicians whose job it was to, I don't know, turn valves and stuff like that. Were these people made aware of the radiation danger they were facing in confronting this, this problem? They didn't really have any means of assessing the radiation danger that they were in. Within the plant, the radiation alarms went off, indicating there had been a radiation release. But a lot of the equipment that was used to monitor doses within the plant while it was in operation simply ran off the scale because they weren't designed to measure radiation in these levels. And the firemen were, were not equipped with dosimetric equipment at all. So although they could see for themselves that you know the reactor was lying in pieces around their feet, they didn't have any way of telling how much radiation they were absorbing or where was a safe area and where was not a safe area. So how long could they have safely stayed near the ruined reactor and how long did they typically stay? Well, some of the technicians that you're talking about who went in to attempt to open the valves necessary, they believed at the time, to continue cooling what they still held to be an intact reactor core. They went into places where you could only stay for, safely for a few minutes before you got your lifetime dose of radiation. But some people, you know, there were firefighters who went into places where you could only safely stay for a few seconds. And many of them and many of the operators in, from within the plant died in hospital afterwards as a result of that exposure. Can you describe the symptoms? What happens to you if you get such a large exposure of radiation? Well, many of the operators and the firemen were burned from both inside and outside by beta and gamma radiation. And they suffered thermal burns as well. So the wounds were quite terrible and made worse for many of them by the fact that unlike thermal burns caused by fire, you know, radiation burns do not heal as time goes by, but only grow worse. So some of these firefighters are admitted to hospital with a sort of pinkening of the skin. And due to the latency period of acute radiation syndrome, where at first you'll feel extremely sick and you'll begin vomiting, then there's a period when you feel actually pretty okay after that. And it's only a matter of days, depending on the severity of your exposure, perhaps days or weeks after that, that you begin to suffer the worst symptoms. And then the burns make themselves apparent. How did the world come to know about the disaster, Adam? I mean, this is when reporting seemingly yin-yanged between minimizing the accident and exaggerating it. Uh, the New York Post claimed 15,000 people were dead in the immediate aftermath. What happened during those initial reports that led to these sorts of misunderstandings? Well, all of these problems were really caused by the Soviet attempts to cover up the severity of what had happened, which was commonplace in the Soviet Union to attempt to do this not only with industrial accidents, but also things like the shooting down of the Korean KAL 007 airliner a few years earlier. So they attempted to put as much of a blanket of secrecy over it as possible right from the outset and to minimize the amount of information that escaped. And this kind of, with the Western press, it backfired because Western correspondents in Moscow were not permitted to travel to the scene of the accident and did the best they could with extremely limited resources. And this meant that they reported all kinds of crazy rumors that they picked up along the way in the first days after the accident. The, I mean, the best indication of the Soviet attempts to keep a lid on it was the fact that it wasn't until radiation alarms inside a Swedish nuclear power station on Monday morning, so more than two days after the explosion had taken place, radiation alarms inside this, this power station went off, and it was that that alerted Western governments to the fact that something had happened and not 
the Soviet government admitting it or sharing any information about it. Certainly one of the most intriguing aspects of this chilling tale that you tell is the discussion of the real reason for the accident at Chernobyl. And not so much technical. I mean, it's an explanation that suggests that to call it an accident at all is simply wrong. You say, and I'm quoting from your book here, the country's culture of secrecy and complacency, the arrogance and negligence, and the shoddy standards of design and construction, those were the cause of the failure. It was really a failure not of a power plant, but of a society. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you'd got a state that was built on twin pillars of lies and and secrecy, and this carried through to every aspect of society, and that included the nuclear industry. And it was those problems, really, that laid the path to the accident. Finally, Adam, what is Chernobyl like today? I mean, uh, it seems to be a tourist destination. If you go online, look up Chernobyl, you know, you can find tours to the place. Uh, Chernobyl is now, you know, it remains at the center of this exclusion zone, which is an area of between 1,000 and 1,600 square miles of abandoned wasteland. But the plant and Pripyat, the town that was built next door to it to accommodate the workers who worked there, is now a pretty major Ukrainian tourist attraction. I think 60,000 people visited the exclusion zone last year. And I understand that there are now souvenir shops on the perimeter of the exclusion zone selling, you know, bright yellow tchotchkes to visitors. Adam Higginbotham, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Adam Higginbotham is the author of Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster. What Adam Higginbotham is saying here is that this was not simply a failure of operations, that the human error pushing the wrong button and so forth. All of that was part of it. But the real story is that this was a failure of the system. It was inevitable that this would sooner or later happen because the system did not correct design flaws. It did not encourage people to blow whistles when things were not working well. The whole system here caused this disaster, not any one thing that you could just fix by sending in somebody with a wrench and a screwdriver. Historian Kate Brown has also had access to declassified Soviet documents for her new account of the environmental and health effects of what she calls a slow-moving disaster. Most of what we are led to believe about the Chernobyl accident is incomplete or just simply incorrect. People were far sicker, uh, far more people died than we understand. But her historical revision is disputed by a scientist who has studied Chernobyl radiation since the disaster. We'll hear from both next. We are rethinking Chernobyl on Big Picture Science. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We're talking about the legacy of Chernobyl on this episode of Big Picture Science. Earlier, we asked author Adam Higginbotham how many people died because of the Chernobyl disaster, and he said it's a fraught question. 
not with regard to the 31 people who perished as a direct result of the explosion, but those who died much later as a result of the radiation released in contaminated territories such as Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia, where the United Nations reports that nearly 8.4 million people were exposed. In 2005, the UN issued a report that drew on the work of hundreds of scientists, economists, and health experts across eight UN agencies, including the World Health Organization. It concluded that between 31 and 54 people died in the explosion, with up to 9,000 future deaths predicted due to radiation exposure, and it outlined how to address the long-term health and economic consequences of the disaster, which the report characterized as, quote, a very serious accident with major health consequences, especially for thousands of workers exposed in the early days who received very high radiation doses and for the thousands more stricken with thyroid cancer. But the UN report said it had not found profound negative health impacts to the rest of the population in surrounding areas. However, historian of environmental and nuclear history at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Kate Brown, disputes the UN findings. She says the long-term toll of low-dose radiation exposure is far more grave. Most of what we are led to believe about the Chernobyl accident is incomplete or just simply incorrect. People were far sicker. Uh, Far more people died than we understand. Uh, We're told that radioactivity is safely contained within the Chernobyl zone. That's a 30-kilometer circle drawn around the plant after the accident and depopulated. But I find all kinds of strange anomalies that come out of the archives. One of the conclusions she draws in her book, Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide for the Future, is that not 9,000, but a minimum of 30,000 people died due to long-term radiation exposure and perhaps as many as 150,000, and that the disaster caused an increase in birth defects, autoimmune disorders, cancer, and notably an increase of thyroid cancer in children. The count is that 300 people were hospitalized after the accident. These were firemen and nuclear plant operators. But the records show that not 300, but 40,000 people were hospitalized from Chernobyl exposures after the accident, many of whom were children. The simple question of death counts is difficult to answer. If you go to UN websites, you get numbers ranging from 33 to 54 people died from the Chernobyl accident. Now, the Ukrainian government alone gives compensation to 35,000 people, not 33, but 35,000 people whose spouses died from a known Chernobyl illness. Now, that's just people who are old enough to marry. That doesn't include infants, children, or people who did not have documented exposures. Off the record, Ukrainian officials told me that 150,000 people have died, they think, from Chernobyl exposures. Now, Ukraine got only 30% of Chernobyl fallout. The rest went to Belarus and Russia and around the world. And we don't have counts from any other country other than Ukraine. So that 150,000 number is the very lowest that we have. So you think that 150,000 people died prematurely because of Chernobyl? That's what the Ukrainian government says. Is that what you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, you see it all over the archives. Chernobyl's records are really interesting because I've worked on environmental and nuclear history for the last 10 years, and I've never seen a government that has so carefully documented and monitored exposures than the Soviets did after Chernobyl. Uh, I found, you know, there's 200 cleanup workers, you know, people who got subsidies as Chernobyl cleanup workers who were living in a very clean town of Chernihiv, 50 miles away, and they were working in a wool factory, and they were mostly women. 
Now, that really surprised me. We think of cleanup workers as these firemen who rushed at the radioactive flames, you know, right at the plant, not women cleaning wool many miles away. So I drove up there to take a look, and I found that these women were picking up and hugging every day many bales of wool that measured 3.2 millirotingen an hour. That's like picking up an x-ray machine while it's turned on. When I got there, of those 200 cleanup workers, only 10 were still on the line, and they said, well, everybody else has either died or been pensioned out as invalids. Yeah, but have they died of uh, consequences of the accident? I mean, you know, the, the people that were there 30 years ago are all older now, so you have to separate out people who would have died anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And so right after the accident occurred, Scientists around the world said, you know, this is a really unique situation. We have the long-term Hiroshima and Nagasaki bomb survivor study called the Lifespan Studies that at that point had been going on for about 35 years. And that just incorporates one big blast, like a huge X-ray of radiation as a dose. But what we don't have are studies of people exposed chronically to long-term doses low doses of radiation. All right. So we have lots of uncertainty, but I'm not sure that uncertainty is accidental. Well, you sound somewhat uh, concerned that there might be a conspiracy here. I'm not saying it's a conspiracy. What I noticed as I worked my way through five UN archives is that a few key opinion makers really weighed in to say, look, according to the Hiroshima studies, we shouldn't see any problems here. We don't think we should go further with any other big studies. So what they did in 1990, and they published this in 1991, is they looked at about 1,600 people in the Chernobyl contaminated territories. Now that's a really small study out of 4.5 million people exposed to look at 1,600 is to basically write a protocol that where you're expecting to find only catastrophic effects, something, you know, people dying on the streets. So they did that study, but while that study was going on, some Ukrainian doctors handed these UN scientists, 20 biopsies of children who had had thyroid cancer in the Chernobyl territories. Now, thyroid cancer among children is really rare. One in a million get it. And here, all of a sudden, there are 20 kids in this small area of Ukraine and another 30 kids in Belarus. Isn't thyroid cancer a known consequence of radiation exposure? It was not a known consequence in 1990. In yeah, fact, but, the UN but, but, but scientists. What about the time of the uh, uh, World Health Organization study in 2005? Well, by then, well, so th- I'm giving you the background to that study. So they took these biopsies home and tested them. They checked out, but they didn't mention them in their study in 1991. They said, you know, there were some rumors of thyroid cancer among kids. We we found those to be anecdotal in nature, and that's a quote. Um, So then, as more and more cancers came online, more and more, by 1996, these same scientists had to say, oops, we were wrong. There is thyroid cancer. That is a Chernobyl effect. And in fact, that number grew to be 6,000 kids with thyroid cancer by that 2005 report. So all the studies we have on Chernobyl, most of them, and there's about, you know, well over 500, have to do with this one effect, thyroid cancer in kids. But that long-term, wide-scale, and more open-ended study of saying, you know, what happens to people when they're exposed long-term to low doses of radiation, that never happened. So you're making the case that the health effects of Chernobyl are ongoing and much worse than we feared and worse by far than the official versions of events. 
Yes. Yes, I'm making that case. And so you might ask, you know, why would international experts, UN scientific administrators, work to help the Soviet leaders minimize the effects of this disaster? I mean, that's a great question. But what I found as I did my research is that UN agencies, they're not independent agencies so much. They respond and work for their clients, and their clients are the most powerful members of the UN family, and those are the big nuclear powers. That's the UK, the US, France, Russia, China. And at this time, the big nuclear powers, especially the US, were facing at the end of the Cold War and the declassification of archives, big lawsuits from their own production and testing of nuclear weapons during the Cold War. So the Americans had blown up bombs in the Marshall Islands, and they had uh, selected out Marshall Islanders for exposure, and they had selected out other Marshall Islanders to serve as a control, and they did a case control study in the 1960s to see what kind of effects Marshall Islanders encountered when they were exposed to testing on the Marshall Islands, bomb blasts. Well, finally, Kate, uh, should we interpret your research as a warning Uh, against the danger of nuclear power? I mean, should we take that as a very severe warning? All I'm saying is that before we enter a nuclear renaissance, and, and mind you, the prediction for solving climate change with nuclear power is to build 12,000 reactors. We have 450 right now. So this means, you know, there's going to be a reactor next to every big city and next to small ones as well. So what's your suggestion? Well, I think we should, you know, the money that we're investing in nuclear power, and, and there's been billions and billions invested in nuclear power in the last six decades, if we invested in renewables, I think with our big brains and our enterprising creative human activity, we will come up with great solutions, as we already have. I mean, it takes 20 years to build a reactor, but we could put solar panels on top of the building I'm sitting in right now in less than a week. Kate Brown, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me on the show. Kate Brown is a professor of environmental and nuclear history at MIT, and she is the author of Manual for Survival, a Chernobyl Guide for the Future. I think that Manual for Survival presents a biased and misleading account of the history of the accident, and to me it reads less like a a serious historical account of the accident and more like an anti-nuclear polemic. I think it's misleading in many ways. James Smith is a professor of environmental science at the University of Portsmouth in the UK, where his research includes the long-term environmental consequences of the Chernobyl and Fukushima nuclear accidents. He's visited the Chernobyl site more than 40 times over the past 30 years and has written dozens of papers and a book about the accident. In his review of Manual for Survival for the Journal of Radiological Protection, he says that Kate Brown has mischaracterized the vast body of scientific research on Chernobyl-caused radiation. I think this book ignores the vast majority of the scientific literature. It focuses very much on the on the stuff that's controversial and contested by scientists and ignores the many thousands of serious scientific studies into the real consequences of the Chernobyl accident. But there are a lot of books out there that you could say, well, I don't agree with this or it's, it's not uh, good research and so forth. Why was it important for you to respond formally to her claims? Well, I've been studying the Chernobyl accident for nearly 30 years now, and and over the years I've seen many, many myths perpetuated about the accident, and these myths do real damage both to the important debate we're having about the possible contribution of nuclear power to climate change mitigation, but also to the recovery of the people who were affected by the accident itself. In Ukraine there are many, many areas 
uh, of land which were abandoned because of what we scientists would call low radiation doses. The people in those areas desperately need jobs, economic investment, uh, and they need to understand that in world terms their their environment is not really contaminated. Many areas affected by Chernobyl are less contaminated by radioactivity than, than areas worldwide which have at higher than normal levels of natural radiation like parts of Colorado, parts of Cornwall in the UK. And it's not only a, a question of the reuse of the abandoned lands, it's a question of how people perceive their own health, their own futures. And I've, I've just visited uh, with my family, one of these affected areas, and we talked to school children, we talked to, to farmers, we talked to um, the, the local teachers, and they, they desperately want to get back to normality. And I believe as a scientist that they can, but we need to get over that risk perception problem. Kate Brown says that uh, she had access to documents and to interview possibilities there that previous investigators have not had simply because of the collapse of the Soviet Union, I suppose, making these documents available. To what extent have others studied the effects of radiation from the Chernobyl accident? Well, I think this is the biggest flaw of this book is that it ignores or dismisses the thousands and thousands of scientific articles on the effects of not only of Chernobyl but of, of low-level radiation. There's a s study by the UN Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation. There's the World Health Organization report into the medical effects of the Chernobyl accident. 45 international independent experts uh, wrote a huge volume on what were and weren't the health effects of Chernobyl, and they came to very, very different conclusions to Kate Brown. Well, one danger that seems indisputable is the spike in thyroid cancer in children as a consequence of radiation exposure, and in particular at Chernobyl. Uh, how would you characterize that? I mean, is that an ongoing worry, or is that something that, uh, you know, after the accident and a year later sort of declines in importance? Well, we have to remember that the, the thyroid cancer was caused by a, a radioisotope called iodine-131, and that has a half-life of about eight days. So, so every eight days after an accident, it reduces by one half. So that means that iodine-131 is only around in the environment uh, in the first few weeks and months after, after the accident. But what the Soviet authorities failed to do was to stop people, and particularly children, from drinking contaminated milk and eating contaminated leafy vegetables that, that had these high levels of iodine-131. And what iodine-131 does is if it's ingested in the body, almost all of it goes directly into the very small thyroid gland. And so after Chernobyl, it's well known that people, and particularly children, got very, very high doses of iodine-131 in their thyroids. And that's led to a, an increase in thyroid cancer in the affected countries. And uh, to what extent is that uh, curable? Uh, well, thyroid cancer is, is one of the most curable of cancers, and ironically, it's cured by iodine-131 therapy. Uh, so in 99% of cases, it can be cured, though victims have to have thyroid hormone replacement therapy for the rest of their lives. So it's serious, but it, it's curable. What about the other increases in cancer, birth defects, autoimmune problems cited by Kate Brown? I mean, uh, these sound pretty yeah. ominous. Yeah, yeah. And, and the problem is that, and this, this has been well known, and it was, it was accounted for by the 
World Health Organization review of the Chernobyl accident is is there are big problems in evaluating health risks after the Chernobyl accident. And for example, people did things like they compared the general health outcomes of people in living in the contaminated territories with people living in non-contaminated territories. And they, they fell into what, what epidemiologists call, they have a name for it, it's called the ecological fallacy. And they thought that they could compare these populations directly. So they did find in the affected areas, poorer health and lower life expectancy compared to the uh, non-affected areas. But that wasn't due to the radiation. That was because in the Chernobyl affected areas, many people and particularly younger people tended to move out and older people tended to stay. So that skewed the statistics, which made it appear that there was some radiation effect. Whereas in in fact, if you do the the proper epidemiology and compare age adjusted populations and so on, you don't see that effect. So in other words, uh, there wasn't really a good control group for evaluating the health effects. That's right. Jim, Dr. Brown interviewed you for this book about the effects of radiation on the wildlife in the area. What did you talk about, and was that included in the book? Uh, well, I've, I studied with my Belarusian colleagues uh, wildlife in the Belarusian sector of the exclusion zone. So we looked at mammal populations and found that after the accident, the mammal populations increased very significantly. And, now, and we also compared mammal populations in the Chernobyl exclusion zone with other nature reserves in Belarus. And we found that for non-predatory mammals, Uh, like elk and roe deer and so on, they had similar populations to the other nature reserves in Belarus. And I I told all this to Professor Brown, and and I found when I I read the book that she dismissed the evidence that I'd given and and, and tried to imply that that I'd never been to Chernobyl in order to discredit what I was saying. And I I was quite upset with this, given, given how many times I've been. And I think if you're going to write a history of the Chernobyl accident, you have to give the full history and you have to at least listen to what the scientists are saying about it. Even if you don't believe us, at least listen and report to what we're saying. Jim Smith, thank you so very much for speaking with us. A pleasure. James Smith is Professor of Environmental Science at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. And you can find a link to his review, A Manual for Survival, on our website, bigpicturescience.org. The nuclear accident at Chernobyl, along with those at Three Mile Island in Fukushima, frightened people and called into question the future of nuclear power. But nuclear energy could be a major contributor to reducing carbon emissions. So how do we evaluate risk under the long shadow of Chernobyl? Next. We are rethinking Chernobyl on Big Picture Science. everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences. What made the Vikings go berserk? 
and Can I Control My Co-Host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. We're talking in this episode of Big Picture Science about the legacy of Chernobyl. One of the consequences of the disaster, which was underscored after the meltdown in Fukushima in 2011, a newfound wariness about the safety of nuclear power. But some environmentalists say that that fear is far disproportionate to the risk. My name is Ted Nordhaus. I'm the founder and executive director of the Breakthrough Institute, which is an environmental think tank in Oakland, California. His group works promoting technologies that will ensure a carbon-neutral future and avoid the devastating consequences of climate change. There was a time when a catastrophic nuclear accident was seen as a mortal threat to humanity. Now climate change represents an existential one. Nuclear energy is still the world's largest source of zero-carbon electricity. We've had it for 60 years. It's played a huge role in displacing fossil fuels, not a big enough role. But if we are serious about really cutting global carbon emissions to zero, we're probably going to need a lot more of it. Well, what about, you know, uh, solar, wind, hydroelectric? These are all zero emission energy sources. I mean, what about the people who say, look, we'll use those. We don't need to use nuclear energy. Well, those people have been saying that for 40 plus years now. And those sources take hydro out of that picture and biomass where we burn trees, which actually is not carbon neutral. Wind and solar are still well below 5% of global primary energy. So if, in fact, it's the case that we're going to power the entire planet with wind and solar, we've been saying that for a long time and we're still under 5%. So you don't see it happening in the next, I don't know, 20 years that we'll be able to overcome the, uh, the, the problems with these energy sources? Yeah, I think we'll see continuing growth of wind and solar, but getting to zero emissions is an enormous challenge. And when you start taking zero carbon technologies that are proven, that work, that we've had for a long time off the table, that challenge gets even harder. All right, well, let's address the concerns with nuclear power generation. Some 30 years on, uh, researchers with access to once classified documents have learned more about what happened at Chernobyl, such as the societal structures that may have made the, the accident in some way inevitable. And uh, there's disagreement still over the number who were harmed. The point is Chernobyl, Fukushima, Three Mile Island even cast long shadows. How do you reassure the public that nuclear power is safe? Well, there's disagreement over the number that were harmed in the same way that there's disagreement over whether climate change is happening. There are people who say that many tens of thousands or even millions of people died or got cancer or birth defects from Chernobyl, just like there are people who say that climate change is a hoax. But the United Nations, the World Health Organization, the consensus among virtually every public health and science body that has looked at the data and evidence 30 years after Chernobyl says that's not the case. So uh, if someone said, look, we're going to build a nuclear reactor, you know, five miles from where you live, 
would that be for you less of a risk than, I don't know, uh, building a, a 45 mile an hour road in front of your house or something else? Much less of a risk. And in fact, I'd welcome it. And in fact, when you actually look at the support for nuclear energy, it tends to be highest among people who live closest to it, who know it the best. And fear of nuclear tends to come from people who actually have very little uh, knowledge or exposure to it. What about technological innovation in generating nuclear energy? I mean, I understand there are mechanisms that can be implemented that shut off a plant if problems are detected, or building small modular nuclear reactors and so forth. Are these really qualitatively changing the picture when it comes to the safety, or for that matter, even the cost of generating nuclear energy? Yeah, well, I think the big challenge with nuclear today, at least in places like the United States, is the cost. I mean, in places like China and South Korea, we can still build them very cheaply. Those are state-run economies. They still do big infrastructure projects really well. In the United States, Europe, a lot of other places, at least my view, is that if there's going to be a big uh, new wave of nuclear energy to solve climate change, it's going to come from these new technologies, which are smaller, they're safer, they can be manufactured like an iPhone or a refrigerator, and then just put on a trailer truck and shipped to the site. What would you say to somebody who says, look, uh, the problem with nuclear plants is maybe not the nuclear plant, but the fact that they're an inviting target for terrorists? To date, the only terrorist attack on a nuclear plant was committed by environmentalists in Germany in the mid-1980s. So there's really not much of a history of this. And you would note that the sort of same safety measures that are put in place to keep the radiation in in the event of an accident are pretty good at keeping terrorists out. The other argument against nuclear energy is the matter of the waste products, nuclear waste. The idea of burying it in Yucca Mountain in Nevada, that doesn't seem to be working out. What are we going to do with this stuff? Well, you know, what we're going to do with it is what we've been doing with it already for 40, 50 years now, which is store it on site in dry casks. And that has proven to be extremely safe. It's very easy to monitor. And over the long term, a lot of that waste will probably get used again. We call it waste, but most of the energy potential that is in the fuel originally is still in it when it comes out of the nuclear plant. And there are a variety of technologies to reprocess it and reuse it. The best thing to do with the waste is to keep it where it is now, in really safe, dry casks that are stored on site at the plants where it was removed from. And likely a couple of hundred years from now, we're going to use that waste again because most of the energy that was in the fuel rods that went into those plants is still in the fuel rods that come out of them. And with reprocessing and new reactor technologies, we can use that again to create electricity or other sorts of energy that we can use. What about the fact that it seems to me, this is an impression now, but it seems to me that many amongst the public have a kind of a visceral negative reaction to nuclear power, although they'll often pronounce nuclear as <laughs> Lyndon Johnson did, nuclear power. And, I, you know, I try to figure that out, but I, I suppose it could have to do with the fact that radiation is, after all, invisible. You can't see it. You can't feel it. You can't smell it. So it's like, you know, swimming out in the surf, thinking that there might be a shark below you in the dark waters, where you, which you can't see, a possibly mortal danger. And uh, the fact that you have no senses 
that can detect it make it particularly menacing. Yeah, I think there there's some truth to that. What's really curious is all the things that we can't see and can't detect that we don't have the same kind of dread fear around that are actually much more dangerous. I mean, even you think about conventional air pollutants, which I guess, you know, you can see in the form of smog and things like that. But when you walk down the street, you don't know how much particulate air pollutant you're breathing in or how much ozone you're breathing in or any number of these other air pollutants that are actually much, much more dangerous for us. But there's this dread risk associated with nuclear energy and radiation, and some of that comes from the association with nuclear weapons. Uh, Some of that comes from fears around sort of nuclear fallout and things like that. So, Ted, where are we with nuclear power today? There are countries that depend on nuclear power, it seems. I'm thinking of France here. What fraction of uh, American generating capacity is nuclear? It's about 18% today. That's actually generation, not generation capacity, because nuclear runs at about 95% capacity factor, which basically means that it's always on, it operates all the time. So we've deployed a lot of wind and solar capacity around the country, for instance, but only 20 to 35% of that capacity actually turns into electricity because the wind doesn't blow all the time and the sun doesn't shine all the time, whereas nuclear plants are almost always on. So about 18%, 19% the last couple of years, I believe, of U.S. electricity came from nuclear energy and had no carbon emissions associated with it at all. Ted Nordhaus, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Thanks so much for having me. Ted Nordhaus is the founder and executive director of the Breakthrough Institute, an environmental research center in Oakland, California. What we've heard in this show is that it's been more than 30 years since Chernobyl, and we're talking about it now because new books have come out that are examining what really happened. And both the authors are drawing on declassified Soviet documents with the intention of giving a clearer picture of the events around this terrible nuclear disaster. Mr. Higginbotham points out that what we thought was an accident, one of these industrial accidents that could happen to anybody, was in fact inevitable given the shortcomings of the Soviet system. Chernobyl fell victim to a bad design. It fell victim to poor communication. It fell victim to simple paranoia that people were afraid to blow the whistle on anything. We didn't know that. It was guaranteed to happen, is what he says, sooner or later. Another aspect of this story is the question of the number of people who died or who became ill because of this nuclear disaster. And MIT historian Kate Brown is disputing the UN numbers, um, these numbers that were amassed by hundreds of scientists and and economists and and health experts. And uh, she says that it wasn't a few thousand people who were made sick by low levels of radiation, but in the area of tens of thousands, maybe 30,000 or as many as 150,000 people. So her numbers for the eventual mortalities from this accident are disputed by Jim Smith, who has studied this stuff for a very long time. He's been to Chernobyl, what, 30 or 40 times. And he says that she comes to these very gloomy conclusions on the basis of a selection of the data rather than a panoptic view of all the data. And there are consequences for that, not just, of course, for Chernobyl, but there are consequences in terms of our policy for dealing with climate change. 
certainly one of the legacies of the Chernobyl accident is this fear of nuclear power. But as Jim Smith and Ted Nordhaus points out, you know, you have to do a cost-benefit analysis here. You have to consider the proportionate risk. Yes, a nuclear power plant could cause a problem. It certainly did cause a problem 30-some years ago. But on the other hand, climate change can also present a problem. And nuclear happens to be one of the arrows in our quiver to combat pollution and fight climate change. Thanks to the talents of those who provide plenty of power to produce this show, senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, and operations manager Barbara Vance. I am executive producer Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to an episode of Big Picture Science called Rethinking Chernobyl. If you want to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you never want to miss an episode, subscribe to BiPiSci on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and Himalaya. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.